Walter Balpert in the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. Today's edition of Fangraphs Audio represents a bit of an experiment. The main guest on our show today is David Lorla. You will almost definitely recognize Mr. Lorla's name from the pages of Fangraphs and before that, Baseball Prospectus. Dave is particularly adept at extracting interesting, thoughtful answers from baseball players. That's his skill. With David, I discuss this skill, some of his process, his preparation, and how he got started as a baseball writer. Masterfully interwoven into my interview with David Lorela are two interviews by Lorela himself. The first is with Red Sox catcher Jared Saltalamacchia. The second with uh, the excellently coiffed former outfielder Oscar Gamble. Again, those interviews by David Lorela are interspersed into this interview with David Lorela. Real cutting-edge stuff, as you see. Beyond that, I'll submit to the listener two other matters. The first is, if you'd like to correspond with any of the guests of the pod, uh, you should feel free to do so via Twitter. You can contact me at my handle, which is just at Sestouli. That is at C-I-S-T-U-L-L-I. Furthermore, if you'd like to express your loving kindness for Fangraphs Audio, you can do that sort of thing most effectively by going to iTunes, uh, giving it some sort of five-star rating, and then by writing an embarrassingly intimate review of it, how it uh, changed your life or helped you meet the woman of your dreams, something like that. Now, with those matters out of the way, though, uh, let's listen to my conversation with David Lorela and to David Lorela's conversations with Jared Saltalamacchia and Oscar Gamble. Okay, good. Yeah, is this uh, is that an Italian name then? Ah, uh, Finnish. Oh, Finnish. How does that happen? How does it happen that it's Finnish? Yeah. What it, do I mean? Do you know anything about it? Uh, I know that my four grandparents were all born in Finland. Literally, all four of your grandparents. Literally, all four. And then, and so, wait, are your parents are your parents American then? My parents were born in the U.S. Yes, but they spoke Finnish as well. Oh, interesting. And, and how is your Finnish then? I can cuss in Finnish a little bit, and that's about it. Is that is cussing a, a big part of Finnish social custom exchanges? No, prob- no, probably not. It's just when you're a kid that you know the important things to pick up on. Right. Now, um, I think that I'm calling you in the Boston area. Is that right? Indeed. Yeah, and you're from – are you from Boston, or did you somehow end up there then? Oh, I ended up here. I am uh, – from Michigan. Ah, a Michigander. In fact, that's where that's where my wife is from, and, and of course I'm in Madison, Wisconsin now. So I've become uh, slightly more acquainted with Midwestern living than I had been previously. I'm actually from the Boston area, by which I mean New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is the? How did you end up there then? Oh, not an important story, really. A woman. That's how people end up places. That is, in, yeah, literally. That's how I've ended up in the Midwest. Yeah, no idea what I'm doing here. Although they do things right out here in terms of cuisine, et cetera, and good living. If you if you like eat, eating uh, animals, yes. Do you eat, do you not eat animals? I I'm not a big animal eater. I grew up eating animals. I I tired of that as a, a young man. Right, and what what people may or may not know, certainly people who haven't been to the Midwest, the animals they don't always kill them beforehand. Go right, they just go right after it. Oh, that they just eat them live. Yeah, just yeah. 
Well, that's that's not as common as it used to be. Um, <laughs> I'm old enough that I did tackle a few deer. You've literally tackled the deer? Um, actually, that's a bluff. Um, I have not, <laughs> although Jaco- Jacoby Ellsbury literally did run down a deer in his backyard in Oregon in, when he was in high school. That is a Jacoby Ellsbury story that's not that well known. Right, and uh, and I should say I should say of course that we're uh, we're talking on Fangraphs Audio here with David Lorela, who knows stories uh, that other people don't know about Jacoby Ellsbury because he knows uh, because he talks to a lot of baseball players. That's what you do. I do. It beats working for a living is the way I look at it. And and a quick side note here is Jacoby Ellsbury probably should have won the MVP award here, Batista over Verlander. I'm saying that as a Michigan native. Of course, we're we're uh, we're taping this uh, mere minutes after the AL MVPs have been announced. Justin Verlander is your American League MVP. It doesn't sound like he's your American League MVP, David Laura. It's Jacoby Ellsbury. Well, well, Batista is probably my MVP, slightly over Ellsbury, but Verlander, and this is probably written up by somebody else on Fangraphs today already, but Verlander. One in large part because the Tigers made the playoffs. Verlander went 24 and five. Well, if had Verlander gone 17 and 12, he gets no votes. The Tigers still mathematically win their division by a game. So yeah. Are you, um, are you dogmatic not, about not, not good voting? Are you dogmatic about pitchers not not winning the MVP? Do you think there there's cases where it makes sense? Oh, it makes sense. Um, Gedry probably should have won over Rice. In what seventy eight, I believe. You don't one, uh, of, one of those years back there when Gidry had the great season. Do you remember the year? Uh, wasn't there a, a Hernandez who won the AL MVP for the Tigers? In eighty seven, yes. Was he deserving? I have to admit, Carson, that I would have to go back and look at the numbers carefully. Um, it was one of the great closer years, certainly, but I think he he may have won because the Tigers had the absolutely unbelievable year and closers weren't sexy yet so the fact that somebody could come in and completely dominate like that was really cool now we're talking with a native michigander current bostonian i don't know if you do identify as a bostonian i i identify as a youper which means i grew up in the upper peninsula of michigan who happens to be now a canterbridgean a canterbridgean I'm a Canterbridgean. I live across the river, so to speak. <laughs> Do you... I live near the smart people in uh, Harvard and MIT. Oh, so you're in you're in Cambridge. Yes, I am. That's a that's an exciting place to be in, and uh, and a place with with uh, unreasonable housing rates. Well, the trick is to do what I did and lock into buying a uh, a nice place when the market was just right. It's deflated, yeah. Smart guy over here. No, you're smart for some other reasons too. Uh, and chief among those is your ability to interview baseball players and baseball personalities. Uh, I'm not. Um, I'm not. I don't think I'm offering any sort of uh, undue praise or compliments when I say that you seem to have a talent for extracting answers from baseball players who are renowned for their capacity to spout, wrote, and, you know, rehearse comments. And I'm curious, I guess, I want to ask you about how you got to that place, but I want to ask a question to Kraft before we get there, which is, how how are you able to do this? I know from the stuff that you published at Fangraphs, from what you published at Baseball Prospectus before that, 
you seem to be particularly adept at getting thoughtful answers from baseball players. And I want to know, is it, is it a matter of the questions you ask? Is it a matter of the players you choose to ask those questions of? Or is it has something to do with, uh, I guess, just personal style from you that puts the players at ease? It is probably a combination of both. I think who you choose is probably the biggest thing. But I probably blame editors more than than anything. There are a lot of great baseball writers out there, but the expectations of what they're expected to get from players and what is going to be published has a lot to do with what they ask and why. Um, I'm in a Boston market that has some fantastic beat writers, a couple of good columnists, a couple of awful columnists as well, but that's another story. And they basically have, I have nothing on them as far as knowledge or amiability, et cetera, et cetera, is I just have an opportunity. I'm fortunate to sit down with somebody for 10 or 15 minutes and present 90% of what they tell me. A lot of the, the other writers simply, they get quotes. Maybe they're going to write a very short feature that gets edited down to something that's not so great. So um, I really don't know it's me, Carson. I just ask what I think is interesting, and I think I'm a pretty good editor. So when you say these other writers maybe more for for feature writing or something along those lines, is that a pretty is that a pretty narrow scope that they're looking for? And and again, you, as you mentioned, it may not be it may not be their choice. It may be a question of the editors or sort of larger policies of the publications for which they work. Oh, I think that's the case because I'm like 90% of writers is I will shop around a little bit for opportunities to write in different places. And I have had some larger entities say, no, we don't really use the type of work that, that you do. So if I do an in-depth article with a, like say an interview with Craig Breslow talking about pitching or, you know, the Adrian Gonzalez I did for Fangraphs about hitting, about mechanics and approach, those things really don't fit um, in a lot of places. And frankly, I don't know why, because I think there's an audience for it. People care what people like Adrian Gonzalez think. You know, baseball players are smarter than people give them credit for, and they should care about how they think about their craft. Yeah, that's interesting because, uh, I mean, to me certainly, and I'm, and I'm guessing to a lot of Fangrass readers, it is interesting to hear Adrian Gonzalez, uh, i.e. one of the best hitters alive currently, discuss the art of hitting. I'm curious when you talk to an Adrian Gonzalez about something like that or, or any of the other players, and I don't want you to have to paint with too broad of a brush, but we might have to make some generalizations. Do you find that they enjoy talking about craft? Oh, absolutely. Players are used to getting the same questions. You know, what happened last night? Why did you swing at that pitch? And there are really limited answers that you can get, and for that reason, you're not really going to get anything new. I think in this interview we're going to hear from Jared Saltalamakia, who I spoke to a few days ago at an event, and that is actually an example of an atypical David Laurel interview because we had a very short period of time, and I couldn't really get into depth with him. So I asked Jared some fairly straightforward questions about, you know, the Red Sox demise, the managerial search, but nothing really probing that he had an opportunity to speak thoughtfully about. I'm here with Jared Sotolamakia. Jared, the night that you got knocked out of the playoffs, that the Red Sox got knocked out, the Braves got knocked out, was really great theater. It was good for the game of baseball. 
Are you, a few months later, able to look at it that way now? <laughs> no. Never able to look at it that way, you know I mean? Um, you know, there's few opportunities to be in that position to, to make the playoffs, um, you know. So, you know, looking back, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, a, a catch here, a pitch here, a hit here, you know, and it's a different story. We're in the playoffs and you never know what happens. Um, so, not, you know, looking back, it's definitely unexpected, you know, I think, um, you know, as far as for fans go and, and that side of it. Um, I can see how it would be a story, uh, you know. But for me, being in the middle of it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't fun at all. What about the World Series? Your old team was playing. That was great theater as well, and you weren't a part of it. Mm, yeah, no, it was it was definitely. Um, I, I didn't get to watch many games, um, you know. But you know, I still root on you know those guys that I'm friends with over there and, and wish them the best and talk to them. So um, you know, I'm just a little sad that they didn't win. You know, I wished it for those guys. Um, you know, but it, it was definitely something. I mean, to be up by a run or two in the ninth, and then one strike away, and uh, you know, end up losing. It's 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 tough, but you know, they they got there. The Red Sox had a disappointing season, at least an end of the season. What about Jared Saltlamakia? Are you satisfied with your year as an individual? Um, you know, I definitely see room for improvement. Um, you know, I'm satisfied from where I was a year ago. Um, you know, as far as that goes. Uh, but you know, I'm the type of guy, I'm the type of player that always, always wants to improve, always wants to do better. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I am, I'm happy with the, the improvements I made, but I know I can be better, and you know, I look to be better for my teammates to help us get to the World Series. The Boston chapter of the Baseball Writers Association of America has a Good Guy Award every year, and I know that you're on the short list this year. That means that you hold yourself accountable, you're accommodating. How important is it that you do that? Um, you know, I think. That um, you know, all the little things count, you know, and I think that um, you know, I think that we, as baseball players, we're we're held you know to a higher standard. You know, we're role models for kids, we're role models for people. Um, you know, and that's why this this game's been around so long is because we do hold ourselves accountable for things. And um, you know, I'm happy that you know people see me as that. Okay, two very uh, quick last questions for Jared Sosalabakia. Um, are you surprised that Terry Francona is gone? Um, you know, a little bit. You know, I thought you know Tito was was awesome. He was great to me. Um, you know, as far as a, a player's manager, he was you know everything you would want. Uh, he always respected me. Always gave me the honest answer. So um, you know, I am a little bit surprised, but I understand you know both sides of it. Okay, and one last question. As a player, are you following the managerial search and thinking, yeah, I like that, that guy, or maybe, no, I really wouldn't want to play for him? Um, no, I mean, because I, I don't know any of the, the guys that they're interviewing. I don't know who they're interviewing. Um, you know, but ultimately i got to do my job just like everybody else on the team and just like the manager. So, um, you know, when that time comes, I show up for spring training. See who the, you know, we'll know who the manager is before then, obviously. I'm sure I'll talk to him. Um, but, you know, we all got a job to do. Now, I'm, I'm curious as to the process. Because you're based out of Boston, you get a lot of guys going through Boston. But I, I'm particularly curious because uh, I, have, I have no idea what I'm doing most of the time. I'm curious what your process is uh, beyond just the mechanics of an interview, but also like you know setting up an interview and, and how you address a player, those sorts of things. My process basically is taking a look at who would be interesting, who might have something interesting to say. And a lot of that I learn – when I do talk to a player, if, if I do know somebody, I will ask, you know, by the way, you know, whom of your teammates is thoughtful? Who, who's a good interview and why? 
And then it's just simply a matter of walking to some, up to somebody in the clubhouse, introducing myself, and um, and engaging them. Try to make it as informal and conversation as easy for me to say and conversational <laughs> as as possible. Um, I used to be a big scripter. I used to know exactly what I was going to ask, and I became pretty good at predicting what an answer would be so the next question flowed reasonably well. Um, I really don't find that necessary anymore because if you pick the right people, the questions are, are going to come. If, if I know baseball, if I know the player, and the player speaks articulately, my job really, Carson, is to stay out of the way. No, you know, these intervie- the interviews I do are never about myself. That I would be making a big mistake if I became a big part of the interview. So you sort of sort of view your role as kind of a medium for getting the best out of the player. Oh, absolutely. Um, a big surprise to me is the the great internet era. Um, Twitter is changing it a little bit now. But I thought as long ago as eight or ten years, players were going to start needing media a lot less, and they would speak in a lot more detail about their careers. It never really happened, and that surprises me. And the Twitter we're getting now is tiny little snapshots, which frankly are not that dissimilar to the length of quotes you're going to give in a post-game interview. Yeah, obviously there. I mean, there are some notable tweeters like a Brandon McCarthy or a. Tory Hunter spends a lot of time there, Brandon Phillips. But there are also you're right, there there are a lot of guys who, who are not um, sort of saying unique things or sort of exposing too much of their personality. I guess at, at some level there there's not a ton of incentive for players to reveal that much, is that right? Well, players of course are people, they're individuals just like you or I or any one of our listeners. Some have the personality that they want to be out there, tell their stories let people know who they are. Some are very private. Um, I've done interviews with players who are very bright individuals. Um, they're friendly individuals, but they just choose to be very careful for, for different reasons. And, you know, one respects that. But I have met and spoken to players in big league clubhouses who, frankly, should write books. I mean, people like Fernando Perez, I'm certain, if they're not already in writing one, they will. But there are players out there who should blog. They should, you know, they should do a lot because they are smarter. They are more talented than I am. Well, I know that uh, one player, actually the only uh, official professional baseball player we've had on the podcast is Matt Antonelli, who happens to also run a pretty a pretty good blog and was recently signed by the Orioles to a major league contract. Um, but he's a player who, who I think really does bridge that gap. I, I wonder if it's more the province of a, a player like Antonelli who either A, has dealt with um, dealt with some difficulties in his career, or or B, or, and maybe that makes him more re- reflective, or B, just a, a player who is kind of not on the, the front lines and maybe doesn't also have issues with privacy the way a more famous player might. Oh, absolutely. Um, Matt McCarthy wrote one of the all-time great baseball books a few years ago about his one year in the minor leagues, Odd Man Out. And Matt had an opportunity to do that because he was no longer in the game. He left and went to medical school. So he could write these very funny telling stories and not have to walk into clubhouses and deal with what he would have to deal with. 
you know, there are great stories out there, but most of us do not and never will know them because what, you know, happens in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse. Now, you mentioned that you used to be a, a scripter of questions. I'm curious as to when you started. How far does the used to be go? Because you mentioned uh, to me in our email exchange that you have no training. So, I, so how did you end up, I don't know, lucking in or sort of working your way into this role as kind of uh, the – I guess the go-between between the sabermetric community and all baseball players. Well, to risk boring the listeners even more than they are already bored. Oh, no, no, they're um, asleep. I, yeah, yeah, don't worry about <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's just you and I speaking, Carson. Right, um, and into, the, into to, the void, yeah. Yes, I used to work a real job like most of us. Um, I've done a lot of those over my life. Um, I started to get bored with that around... 2003, 2004, and to be honest, purely by chance, ended up doing a few interviews for a small uh, Red Sox blog, and I thought it seemed like a pretty good idea. I ended up pitching one of them to Baseball America, um, possibly my favorite print publication in the world, and they said, no thanks, but if you can write a feature story on this particular player, we might be interested. And at that point, I had literally never, ever written a feature story of any kind, period. I had written short stories. I had written some poems. But as a lifetime lover of baseball who's devoured a lot of baseball writing, thought, oh, I can do that. And I sat down, and in one sitting, I wrote it, and I sent it in, and they answered back, said, looks good. You know, they made a couple of editorial tweaks, and it was in the uh, in their next issue. And it was at that point I thought, oh, heck, I can do this. And so, and so, see, what, so this see, is we, back... we, the last three people that were awake are now sleeping. No, yeah, no, but the uh, so this is 2003 or, or 04, you're saying? So that's not that's not that, that long I, ago. No, that that I guess was 2004. Okay, yeah, and so that's not, but that's not that long ago. So you've somehow have fashioned a, a sort of this niche uh, over just a you know eight year time, seven year span, or something like that. I did, and as I tell my wife, um, in another ten or fifteen years, I will actually make uh, some real money doing it. Well, I, yeah, I do. I wish you luck towards that end. But so, what happened then after you? For example, who was that first interview with? Do you remember that? It was with Abe Alvarez, a left-hander that ended up getting a cup of coffee in Boston a few years later. Right, and who I believe was uh, legally blind in one eye, is that true? Yes, and he wore his uh, cap a little bit askew under his uh, his bushy hair. Right, yeah, he, he and I believe, uh, I forget if it was his debut or maybe one of his earliest, or and, and therefore only starts. Uh, didn't it, all his teammates wear their caps to the side while he was pitching at some point? Your memory on that is better than I, but I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah, I think but, there and, was... uh, if, if if Abe happens to be listening to this, if he's a Fangraphs fan, um, you know I hope you're doing well. It's been a while. So you you wrote this feature on Abe Alvarez, and then what was the next step? Because at this point, you've had merely one feature taken by Baseball America. That does not a career make. No, I simply wrote some more. I contributed there for a while. I just sent things along, and now it seems like a lot of people use my work, and um, I'm grateful to that. There are a lot of people who love to write, and 
you know, I hate to be too humble or self-deprecating, but I don't think I'm more talented than a lot of people out there who have never had their stuff seen. I'm just, I'm just fortunate. And now, uh, I know that you are a member of the the Baseball Writers Association. Is that a fact? Um, as we speak, I am. Yes. Yeah, as we speak. Um, <laughs> developing things, things change. Things change in life, Carson. I hope that that remains the case. Yes. Well, I do. I do too. And of course, you are. So you're the first member of our staff at Fangraphs uh, who's had that designation. I'm curious as to the sort of process of joining Baseball Writers of, um, Association and and what sort of privileges that that gives you um, with that designation? Well, to answer the the latter first, the privileges is that I can walk into any ballpark in the country and go into the clubhouse, you know, during clubhouse times with with anyone else, which is fantastic. Um, it is certainly possible to get credentialed on a game by game basis, and I did that prior to being a BBWAA member. As to how one becomes a member, that is simply a matter of the organization for whom you write needs to be accredited. Hence, if you do not work for a publication that is accredited, you cannot be a member. Mm, right. And there's the rub, am I right? Um, well, it is a rub. It's just the way things are structured, and that is, of course, changing. There are a lot of Internet-only publications nosing into it now as opposed to simply print, which was the case for a long time because, sadly, print is going away. I'm old enough that I still appreciate reading my newspaper over coffee in the morning. Um, my daughter, who is now 15, when she is my age, I think the, uh, the likelihood is pretty small. Uh, of that that existing. I, I mean, I, I think that, uh, uh, of course, I use electronic media quite a bit. I still there is still some pleasure in in uh, reading and holding something in your hand. Uh, I don't know if that's a nostalgic pleasure or if that's a sort of if there's an intrinsic pleasure to that. Um, oh, I think I think it's intrinsic and it's habit. Um, I think nostalgia gets in with things like the Oscar Gamble interview, which is the other. I believe we're going to hear today. When I have an opportunity to sit and talk to an Oscar Gamble. That is when I feel like a kid again, the, uh, somebody who I followed when I was young, and now I can sit and chat with him amiably about his career and his experiences. That's that's fun. That that's why baseball is fun, Carson. My guest is Oscar Gamble, former outfielder, longtime outfielder. Um, Oscar, your first year in the big leagues was 1969, Chicago Cubs. You were 19 years old, I believe. That's right. That's right. I was 19, and I got a chance to play for Leo DeRocha. And we had a lead that year. That's the year the Mets won it. And we had a big lead, and they came back and tracked us down. I think they, we didn't play that bad, but they played great ball down the stretch and beat us out. That's an infamous year in Chicago. It, you know, is there a curse in Chicago? I don't know about a curse, but we had a big lead, and they, uh, I think that was the year they put the black cat on. The black cat ran out on the field when he was playing the Mets that year. But I don't, I don't think it's a curse. I just think that, you know, at that time they didn't have uh, lights, and we played a lot of day games that year. I think we played like 136 day games that year. I think that hurt us down the stretch. You're a 19-year-old kid. You got to play with Ernie Banks. Tell me about Ernie. Ernie is a great guy, great guy. He, uh really showed me the ropes, you know, really, because I had no idea what to do, you know, and he would 
pick me up and knock on my door. I was staying at a hotel and get me and take me out to the ballpark. So he was, you know, every morning. And the club, they played day games. So he had to be out there by 9.30. So every morning at 9, 9.30, he's picking me up in his car. And, you know, he's going out his way just to come get me. He really took care of me when I was a kid. Great guy. You went over to Chicago. Actually, you went to Cleveland first. When you went to Cleveland, Larry Doby, you worked with Larry Doby. Yeah, I went to Philly first, then I went to uh, Cleveland, and I worked with Larry Dobie, and Larry Dobie was a great uh, hitting instructor and helped me out a lot, really did. And he was a, a great guy, you know, the, uh, great coach. He was one of the great coaches, and he was one of the uh, first blacks to play in the uh, in the Miracle League, so I got a chance to meet him and, you know, really learn the history about the game. You know, we're all a little older now than you were in 1969. I was 10 years old in 1969. Baseball history becomes more important as you get older. Yeah, just how important is Larry Doby? Oh, Larry Doby is very important. I mean, really, to be the first uh, black to play in the American League, and, you know, he came right behind Jackie Robinson, and, you know, just to uh, learn, you know, from him, and, you know, like, we had the 60s, and we had the 70s, what we, you know, we went through a lot of stuff at that time. But it was just, you know, just to hear about what they had to go through, you know, to get, and the kind of players that they were, and, you know, the things that they was put, in, put on them, to, you know, to do good so that we could follow, you know, and we had a lot of guys to follow, you know, and, and do good. So they set the stage for us, and they took a lot of abuse at that time, you know, back in those days. So once you look at the history, and, you know, well, at that time I think you couldn't live in the same hotel, and, you know, the players were living different. And just to be able to go out and perform after going through that was, you know, was something that was on right, really. Okay, once again, I'm talking to Oscar Gamble. You played for a couple of owners who are pretty notable. One, George Steinbrenner. The other is Bill Veck. Oh, yes, yes. Those are two unique individuals. Two unique, and they had, you know, they was uh, alike in a certain way that both of them wanted to win, and both of them, you know, had uh, ideas the way the game should be played and the way the game should go. And they was very outspoken to the truth, and they was hands-on. Both of them liked to be in the clubhouse, and both of them liked to, you know what I mean, they liked to be around the clubhouse and around the player. And they was hands-on. They talked to you. You know, you could talk to them almost every day if you wanted to because they died in the clubhouse and they died with the players. And, you know, they back then we would negotiate your own contracts and stuff. So they would negotiate, you know, they would negotiate while you was playing or while the game was going on. And they let you know what was happening at that time. Bill Beck is arguably the most colorful owner in baseball history. Maybe Charlie Finley could give him, him a run. But was the game itself more colorful in your era than it is today? Uh, I think, you know, I like the way it is today as far as, you know, like the, back when I played, it was like the pitchers control, you know, like uh, they had a lot of knockdown pitch. You know, they just hit you with the ball a lot back then. I mean, they would throw at you a lot. Now that I think they, they done brought most of the center field back then was like 420 or 440 feet. Now the center fields are like 400 feet. So the ballparks are smaller now, you want to know the truth. And I think I like that better now. They don't, they can't throw at the hitters like they used to. So I think that advantage to the hitters, they can dive over the plate. Now, back then, they couldn't, you know, you couldn't dive over the plate like you can now. You played for Billy Martin. He was willing to ask his pitchers to throw at at a hitter. What was Billy like? Oh, Billy was great. Billy was great. Billy had a lot of spirit and a lot of, uh, like, he was uh, was a, one of the best managers I played for. You know, he, he really could sell, you know, get the players to believe in what his strategy. 
and he would play small ball. You know, he played the bunt, get the guy over scoring, get the guy in scoring position. And he was a good motivator, one of the best motivators I played for. Okay, two more questions, Oscar. When you played for the White Sox, the team was called the the Southside Hitmen. I that's believe it's a pretty that, catchy nickname. Oh, uh, that's a great, the great nickname for that team that year because we had a, a lot of guys hit a lot of home runs, and I think Bill Beck built that team on players that had been, you know, like uh, that he could just sign for that one year. And he had me, Richard Ziz, Eric Sardahar, Ralph Gar. Had a lot of players over there. Lamar Johnson, Chet Lemon was a rookie coming up. So we had a great hitting team, and we, you know, we hit the ball around pretty good. And we had a lead, I think, last of August. We was leading the lead. I think we ended up finishing second that year. But it was a great year for the Vice. I really enjoyed playing that that year. I believe you hit over 30 home runs. I hit 31 home runs. I got a chance to play, and that was one of the few times I got over 400 at bat. So I was able to hit uh, 31 home runs that year. Which leads me, Oscar, to my last question. Most fans know you for your appearance. You had the hair. You were a very, very flashy dresser. Are people missing out the fact that you were a pretty good baseball player? Uh, I think so. I think so. But, you know, the the hair thing, I think, caught on, you know, when I really got out of ball, to tell the truth. When I was playing, you know, at that time, there was a lot of people that were playing afros at the time. But then when, you know, the... the uh, the picture, I get a lot of the uh, cards in the mail and, you know, their pictures and stuff. Most of them send the, the picture with the uh, with the big afro. And I think it, you know, like, it don't bother me being known for the, you know, the hair. That don't bother me at all. So you enjoy that? I enjoy it, yes. Baseball it's, is still It's fun. a lot of fun, yeah. And I get the question all the time, where's your hair? <laughs> I always tell myself in the hat, I wear a lot of hats. So, <laughs> so it's a lot of fun. Oscar Gamble, thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Let's very briefly discuss the Oscar Gamble interview that I believe you conducted at the same time as the Salta Lamaki interview. How did, like in this particular case, how did those interviews come about? I was at an event which certainly merits mention here. It's the annual Granite State Baseball Dinner in Manchester, New Hampshire. The New Hampshire Fisher Cats, the Blue Jays AA affiliate, puts it on. And when one hears me say that, they think, oh, small town in, in New Hampshire has an event, you know, so what? You know, Oscar Gamble and Salton Lamacchia were there. Well, those two were two of um, maybe 15 special guests they had there. And every year it's just uh, absolutely amazing. Chris Carpenter was there this year, um, some, uh, some former Boston Bruins, um, some former number of former players. Um, it's just Great event, and um, you know Roy White was there, who I unfortunately did not get a chance to speak to. The, the great Yankee, for whom I disagree with uh, Bill James, I think he was not a better player than Jim Rice. But yeah, that's that's another story. Uh, and then at this event, you uh, is this a situation where there, there's a time where you you can sort of have access to the special guests and just approach them and ask them some questions. There is. It's not structured ideally. The media there are sharing their time with uh, people who are looking for autographs. And one of my flaws as a reporter is I'm not willing to push a 10-year-old kid out of the way in order to speak to uh, to a ball player. Well, that is one of your great flaws. Uh, but you do appear to have enough strengths, David Lorelai, that you can uh, balance it out. Um, I w- hey, listen, I just want to I want to thank you for uh, for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. And uh, and I really am an idiot for not having taken advantage of your uh, your skills in, in capturing audio before this. And that's uh, one of my many flaws. Um, but so, but so uh, in advance, thank you for contributing the audio from the Gamble and Salt interviews. 
No, you're welcome, and uh, going forward, perhaps we can uh, entertain people with more of these. Yeah, I definitely think that should that should be good. And uh, that is uh, that is David Lorla. I'm Chris Tisuli, uh, and this has been another, uh, I think, thoughtful and poignant edition of Fangraphs Audio. Thank you.